Well, friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to go ahead and turn with me again to Genesis 1.27. Genesis 1.27. And as you're turning there, I'll go ahead and let you know this is going to be a longer talk. I had tried to make it as short as possible, but I think that is near impossible with the topic we're going to be talking about tonight. And there are still things that I'm not able to talk about. So we're probably going to come back to this. But you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we began uh, these two studies in what we're calling Considerations from Creation. Uh, by considering a biblical approach to ethnicity and race. Uh, we looked at the same verse that we're going to look at this evening, Genesis 1.27, and from it, I, I tried to show us, biblically speaking, that there are but two races. There is the race of Adam, which all humans are born into, and there is the race of Christ, which as Christians we are born again into through the Holy Spirit. By looking at the two races that the Bible holds out, this biblical approach then dismantles social constructs of race and racism, systematic or otherwise, systemic or otherwise. But it's when we come to this place noting how Christ alone brings reconciliation to us and God, making a way for unity within the church of Christ. This is the The only place where true biblical unity can exist is within the community of Christians. We come to see the second reality I tried to draw out. That from one man, that being Adam, God made many nations. He made many ethnicities. He made many tongues and many tribes. And it is those ethnicities and it is those tongues and those nations and those tribes that the hearts of humans can show partiality against. This is what we have called ethnic partiality. And we showed from Scripture how there is no place for ethnic partiality in the household of God. It is a sin that is to be denied in its wickedness. Just as there is no place for economic partiality or educational partiality or what we might call gender partiality. As Paul says of God's people in Galatians 3, 27 and 29... For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, there's that note of the race of Adam coming into the race of Christ. As you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So let's step back then, because this is the verse that is very often used by those who argue that men and women, because they have equal dignity, therefore means they must have equal roles. For surely we would never say that in Christ, Jews can only do certain things and Gentiles can only do certain things. So why would we say that about men and women? Which brings us back to Genesis 1, 27. And the passage that we're going to look at tonight there. And several passages taken from the New Testament which bring up what we find in Genesis as the basis for understanding the Christian life both in the home and in the church. Now with that said, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the home and the church and the roles of men and women in those spheres tonight. We'll save those for a different time. But tonight, I simply want to look at Genesis 27 and talk about gender, sexuality, manhood, and womanhood. So let's look at Genesis 127 one more time. Again, holding 
out this, this first bit of poetic verse that we find in the Bible, the song of the creation of humanity, a work of the triune God. It says there, God's word to us, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now there are four things I want to think about from this verse as it relates to gender and sexuality. First, I want us to think about the basis of gender and sex as God himself. Second, I want to answer the question of what is a biblical man. Third, I want to answer the question of what is a biblical woman. And fourth, I want to think about gender confusion and gospel clarification. So let's begin then with the basis of gender and sex being God himself. Now it's helpful to define define our terms here. So what do we mean by gender and sex? Are they the same thing? Why, Why are there two different words? Well, this again is something just like race and racism that our world has co-opted for their own purposes. So it's important for us to understand what the Bible means in light of this. Saying, our culture says that sex refers to what someone is created biologically or physically, speaking specifically of their reproductive organs. While gender, in our culture at least, has become a subjective term, a person uses based upon how they feel and the traits and the characteristics and the functions a person desires to display. Gender in our world is a matter of choice. And this is what is so odd. On the one hand, our culture continues to use American cliches to define gender. That if I feel like being a woman, I would look and say and be like this. While at the same time saying that there is no such thing as gender norms. And to say so is oppressive. So we come to a conundrum that our culture has seemed to overlook. That if gender norms aren't real then why do we continue to define ourselves by them, even if it is our choice? Confused yet? Herein lies the issue that our text seeks to hold out for us. As we see in this verse, it is God who has created and ordained two sexes based upon his sovereign choice and creativity. And each of these is engendered with worth, purpose, and meaning. This can be seen in the way that this little poem breaks down. Look back there. In each of the lines, you'll see a work of God mentioned. In line A, so God created man, him, meaning humanity. In B, he, meaning God, created him, humanity. And then in line C, he, God, created them, in the plural, humanity. So we see in each of the three lines, God is doing something. He is creating But alongside this, there is a corresponding feature of this creation. How it is that God created. So in line A, so God created him, here's how, in his, meaning God's, own image. In line B, we see the same thing. Here's the feature, in the image of God, he created him. Now note the feature that in the first two lines focuses on image bearing, flowers into what in the third line? Male and female. He created them. So, in the corresponding parts of the verse, what is it that we find? We find that the image of God that is being made in it, bearing it, displaying it, is so built into creation, particularly in our maleness and femaleness. So bringing all this together, let us summarize it by saying this, that there are the facts of God's creation order And this means our identity as humans 
is divinely set. That God is the one who determines what humans are. And He determines that there are two genders, male and female, and both of them bear His image, and they are forever relational. In relation to God, each of us is a creature. In relation to the rest of creation, each of us is human, an embodied image bearer of our Maker. And as His creatures, each of us is male or female, a man or a woman. In relation to our parents, each of us is a son or daughter. As a son or daughter, each of us is a potential father or a potential mother, a potential brother or a potential sister. Even if we do not have spouses or siblings or children, there is the potential there in our sex, in our genders. These are fundamental, objective, and unchanging facts about each of us as human beings. And what's so important to see here is that they ultimately point to a spiritual reality. So, in seeing that men and women are created as unique humanity to display the image of God, we should ask why. Why has God made two sexes? And should they be gendered? And should there be gendered expressions of each? Or to ask it another way, what does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to be a woman? Now, I realize that one of our new Supreme Court justices had a hard time answering this question when she was asked. But I want to give us a clear answer tonight. And let me answer it with dealing with each in turn and then bringing them both together. Now, before I get into this, I want to make two disclaimers. Number one, I do not have time tonight to tease out all that I'm about to say. And should and will return to this topic at a later time. We're going to be emailing out tomorrow, and we'll have paper copies next week of a paper that Pastor Sean has put together on what we believe as a doctrine of man that we hope will be helpful to you. The second disclaimer, though, is that definitions always have their limitations. Words fail us. We cannot perfectly define anything. We come up short. We are fallen and incomplete people. And so my aim in giving these definitions that I'm about to give you and explaining them is to simply give us a broad framework. I'm going to paint with... with Wide brushstrokes here. In light of that, I'm going to say this here. That too often, as Christians, we fall into ditches in these conversations. On the one hand, some believe that the Bible and the biblical truths mean that men are the only ones who are gifted in leadership. That they're the only ones gifted in teaching. And therefore, women must always be silent in the home and in the church. And they have no real place of serving. That's one ditch. And the other ditch is to believe that because men and women have equal value as image bearers, then that must mean that they have to have equal roles. Therefore, denying the biblical call of male headship in the home and in the church as simply a cultural command that is no longer binding and calling for women to stand as the head of their own home or the head of the church. But, as I think you'll see, just as following Jesus is always narrow, Understanding biblical manhood and womanhood requires us to follow a narrow path, following the Word of God toward equal worth, different gifting, and essential roles within our homes and within the church. So let's jump into manhood real quick. What is a biblical man? When I say that, I don't mean an American man. I don't mean a primal man. I don't mean what is a man in his natural heart. I'm not speaking of bacon Hunting and camouflage. 
What is a biblical man? Nothing wrong with camouflage, brother. Or bacon. Right. But according to the Bible, what do we find manhood being? Well, here's my working definition of manhood. To be a biblical man is to willingly submit to the authority of God. That is key. To willingly submit to the authority of God by joyfully seeking to accept responsibility, care, and serve the world that God has given them. To joyfully accept responsibility, care, and serve in the world that God has given them. Now I can spend the rest of our time breaking that down and maybe we'll come back to it at some point. But it's enough here to say that this means at its basic level the call of God upon men is to live with our heads up, with our eyes open, watching, keeping, and laying down our lives to see the world around us built up and strengthened. We see this very pattern given in the garden and re-emphasized among God's redeemed people. Think about this. Prior to the fall, Adam had oversight and care of the garden. He was made first. He was called to name all of the animals. He was given the charge to practice dominion. And in the fall, he is the one who is finally held accountable for the sin. Adam's oversight and care of his wife and the garden had been given to him, and it was a great delight. It was fruitful, and he kept all in order, all that God had put him over. But in the fall, we find it undone, don't we? This is why Adam's chief sin in the garden is the sin of passivity. Not stepping in, not crushing the head of the serpent who was tempting his wife away from the very word of God. It is worth noting here that we see in Jesus, who is the ultimate man, that he comes and he does crush the head of the serpent. This is also why the curse placed on Adam in particular is that of hardship and pain in his labors, in his building, in his striving. The call to joyfully accept responsibility and care for the world God has given him is no longer full of restful joy. But joy now must be fought for among thorns and thistles. But in the gospel, we find the redemption of this call, do we not? We find that in Christ, men are once again equipped through the Spirit to rise to the call and accept responsibility and care for those that God has given them. Whether it be a wife, a children, or the brothers and sisters in a local church. This is why eldership and those teaching with a measure of authority is reserved for the spiritually mature men of a church. Because it is these that God gifts the church to accept full responsibility for his people. Or to say it more simply, if things go south around here, me, David, and Sean's necks are the ones on the line. We accept responsibility, as 1 Peter 5 tells us, as under-shepherds of the chief shepherd. And it's worth making this note here, and I'll bring it up again in talking about women in a moment. This doesn't mean that all men are called to marriage. This doesn't mean that all men are called to fatherhood or to church leadership. But if you are a man, you are called to spiritually care for those you've been given in whatever realms you find yourself in. Even if it is a single man or just a regular church member. This is why discipleship holds such a prime place in the local church for men and women. Because the call of physical generation, the call of physical generation that we find in the creation mandate, which still is upheld for marriage today, that call blossoms under the new covenant 
into a spiritual call for all men to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion care and seeing brothers and sisters born again in Christ. This is why Paul says that Timothy is his true son in the faith. Paul is a man's man. So men, if you're wondering what it means to be a man, here it is. Manhood means you take responsibility for yourself. It means that those that God has given you, you take responsibility for. You get up, you work hard, you labor long, you put your neck on the line, and you're back into it to make it sure, whether physically, mentally, and most of all spiritually, that those around you are flourishing in their trust and love and obedience to God. But what of women? Are they off the hook? Are they responsible for nothing? Can they not be trusted with anything? No. Again, these definitions are not airtight, but are general enough that we can see the overlap of gifting and use of gifts. So what is a biblical woman? Well, ladies, let me give you the high calling of God's word. Here's my definition. Remember, it's not airtight, not super specific, but taking into account the biblical calls and mandates upon women in particular. To be a biblical woman is to willingly submit to the authority of God. It's key. Put it at the beginning here again. To willingly submit to the authority of God by joyfully seeking to cultivate, nurture, and beautify the world that God has given them. The call of women is to cultivate, to nurture, and beautify the world that God has given them. Now, this is what is interesting. This is what really got in my crawl this week as I was thinking about this. In preparing for tonight, I did not have trouble conceiving what a biblical man is. But I had great trouble gathering my thoughts concisely about what a biblical woman is. At first, I thought this is because I'm a man and not a woman. And perhaps I just don't understand. But the more I considered it and studying the Word of God, the more I found it had less to do with who I am and more to do with what the culture has said about women. And this is where I want to press us, men and women, as we think about biblical womanhood. Especially as we continue to live in a culture that on the one hand touts its love for women, while at the same time seeking to gut the reality of womanhood of all meaning and redefine the glory of a woman as being just like a man, all while seeking to obliterate the gifts that God has given in their wombs, we must have our eyes open to God's word about womanhood. Or to say it more bluntly, our culture has so ruined womanhood that many women today can no longer define what it is to be one. And so, if we are confused about woman, what womanhood is, let us attribute that to where it is due. It is not because God has been unclear, but because our culture has crept into our thinking. As 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And again, this could take a whole talk into itself, unto itself. But let me get back to my definition for a moment. To be a woman is to be fundamentally gifted, both naturally, but even more supernaturally, to bring flourishing to the world, to bring beauty, to bring a certain glory to their home and to their church, and even to the world in which we live in a way that men cannot. Now, this does not mean that there aren't men who are wonderful poets or wonderful interior designers. That's not what is at play at all here. No, it is much more 
big and important than that. What is held out in biblical womanhood is a unique gifting to bring life, to bring flourishing, to cause the spirit to be lifted in a particular way. Of course, we see this in the womb. I am sad to say it, but it needs to be said. Only women can have babies. But we also see this in the hard work of the woman described in Proverbs 31. We see this in the work of the women in the Old Testament. We see this in the women of the early church. And friends, we see it throughout church history. Godly women bringing life to the world around them. And we hear this call in 1 Peter 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Now he's not saying there that it's wrong to look nice. But he's saying do not let your adorning be external. But let your adorning, he goes on to say, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Ladies, I ask you this question. Do you want to be very precious in the eyes of the Lord? Then here it is. Note that femininity, biblically speaking, isn't external in look, but internal in disposition and attitude. So let me charge the women here in a particular way. Do not let the world undo your womanhood by telling you that the highest form of womanhood is to be just like a man. Don't let the world lie to you and you believe it. Men need to rise up and be men. But we also need women to rise up and deafen their ears to the cultural pleas for feminine upheaval and be strong women of God, rich in doctrine and dedicated in service. So we see that sex and gender are both the choice of a sovereign God and not the choice of sinful men. Now to bring all of this together, there is... Certainly a gender confusion in our culture, isn't there? Whether we are speaking about differing views of sexuality, sexual expression, gender identity, or where people fall on the so-called gender spectrum, we must at the outset say that the world's view of gender, much like its view of race and ethnicity, are more informed by the fallen mind of humanity and not by the mind of God. A simple reading and discussion of Genesis 127 shows us this. And as we are about to enter into June, the month of June, where sexual perversion and gender confusion will be celebrated far and wide, pressing further and further into our cultural view, we must remind ourselves that God has made good and fitting in his creation two genders to display his image. And Romans 1 tells us this will be taken and dismembered and shuffled around by the passions of fallen humanity. And so, just as we should wonder why ethnic partiality exists, or we shouldn't wonder why ethnic partiality exists, we should not wonder why gender confusion and sexual perversion exist. It is because of sin. It is because the desires of our hearts have turned in upon themselves. Sin, all sin, drives humanity to pursue that which is contrary to God, that does not align with His design, and whenever this is called out, as Christians should and rightfully do, humanity, sinful humanity, fallen humanity, will go in one of two directions. They will deny, on the one hand, that God does not exist, and therefore they are free to do as they please. 
Or on the other hand, they will say that suddenly God has come to a new decision and now made allowance to their sin of choice. And why do I bring all of this up? It's because we must first have our eyes and ears about us as we see the world. Children, listen up. This means that you will see and you will hear and you will even come to know people who live contrary to the word of God. This should not surprise you. And this should not cause you to hate them and deny their personhood. They too are people created in the image of God. Instead, for all of us, it should cause us to turn to the only one who can reclaim what is shattered by sin and redeem what has been marred by Satan. We should pray. We should pray for ourselves. We should pray for those we know who are walking contrary to God. And that's why a proper understanding of gender and sexuality is so important. That's why it's so right and good for us to consider what God has done in making particularly men and women. Because it's when the two become one flesh in marriage that we find the beauty of the gospel there held out. This is why marriage is fundamental to humanity. Marriage is not just fundamental to a flourishing of society, but it's fundamental to understanding what takes place in the redemption through Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that you're less human if you aren't married. Paul speaks about this as a single man himself. And some of us are all too familiar with the pain and loss of having to live a time without our spouses because of death. But that does not change the fact that marriage is foundational. Because male and female are equal under God, but they do carry different roles. And when they come together in marital unity... They create something, they complete something, they display something. And what is that exactly? Well, we find it in Paul's reminding us of the first marriage in Ephesians 5. And calling husbands there, and some of you, all of us men need to listen up who are married. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And there he quotes from Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Paul's going to give us a brand new statement about this. This mystery of the two becoming one flesh is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so let's land our time here. Seeing why God has made two who in marriage become one. Whether you're married or not. Whether you're a man or a woman. Whether you've struggled sexually or with gender questions or not. See here the reality that the first man and the first woman pointed to. And every marriage between a man and a woman since then has pointed to whether they realized it or not. It holds out the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ and calling a people to himself, a bride to shower in love, to keep and protect and to equip, to storm the gates of hell and stand with him in glory. So let us hold fast to our bridegroom as we live as godly men and godly women in a confused world. Let me pray. Father, we need your wisdom. We need 
your mercy. We need your work in our hearts. And navigating through the world in which we live, God. We pray that our hearts would not be influenced by the cultural commentary. The desires of fallen humanity. We pray and we ask that our hearts would be informed and transformed, renewed by your word. We pray and we ask that our minds would think rightly where your word reigns preeminent. Because Christ, our King, is King of kings and Lord of lords over all. And so God, as we leave here, pray especially over the coming month, as we will face messages and media touting something that is contrary to your word. I pray and I ask, Lord, that you would equip us as men and women, that you would equip the children in this church to stand, to stand in love and to stand in truth, that we would extend finally and fully the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.